This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Our guys today, we got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Patrick Montgomery. So he is a former member of the 1st Ranger Battalion, and that's the first of three Ranger Battalions belonging to the U.S. Army's 75th Ranger Regiment. He's also the founder and owner of KC Cattle Company. So you guys have heard me talk about KC Cattle Company a lot on this show. This group, uh, and he bought their first two cows back in 2016, and they've grown it all the way to what it it is today. And so in this interview, we spend quite a bit of time talking about Patrick's military career, talking about, you know, what it was like... uh, why he decided to go into the military, why did he choose the Rangers, specifically why Rangers don't really get a lot of play and a lot of people kind of talking about them and kind of why they're more so the quiet professionals. When his brother-in-law died while on deployment and how he was able to uh, to honor his brother-in-law and his family by, you know, uh, accompanying the body back to the United States and back to their hometown and everything like that. And we get into all the stuff and we also get into the wokeness in the military and, you know, the pullout from Afghanistan and what that's done to, to veterans. And then we got into talking about KC cattle company. Like that's not normally a direct path for most people, most people going from the military to becoming, you know, a cattle rancher and those types of things. So how did all that happen? You know, when did they blow up and go viral as a company? And I'm going to give you a hint. It was because of their Wagyu hot dogs. And guys, that's a good time for me to mention that we talked about them on the show so many times. We're so thankful for this company, but specifically we're thankful for them because they're the only meat delivery service in the United States, the subscription-based service that is U.S. military veteran owned, U.S. military veteran operated, and all of their beef, chicken, and pork products are made here in the United States of America. That's KC Cattle Company. We really like these guys. We love what they're doing. They specialize in Wagyu beef, so we're going to talk a lot about Wagyu beef in this episode, and I'm not going to tell you about Wagyu beef because I'm going to let Patrick do it in the latter part of the episode, but they sell everything from Wagyu steaks to roast, pasture-raised chicken, pasture-raised Berkshire pork, Wagyu bacon cheeseburger, bratwurst. The bratwurst are unbelievable. And again, the world famous Wagyu hot dogs that guys that just doesn't make sense that you could eat something that looks like a hot dog, but tastes like a steak. And so they wanted to make sure that you guys could try out their products and guys definitely go and do this. You've got to try out their products. So go to caseycattlecompany.com. That will be in the show notes, caseycattlecompany.com. Use the promo code Kyle to get 15% off of your order. Again, that promo code is just my first name, Kyle. That's K-Y-L-E to get 15% off your order at caseycattlecompany.com. All right, guys. This is a great interview. I really enjoyed my time with Patrick. I'm not going to keep him from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Patrick Montgomery, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thank you for having me on, Kyle. It's going to be a fun one today because you've got kind of unique setup and we'll get to all of that kind of stuff because we got a lot of good stuff we're going to get to. But I guess in terms of introduction, we got to start as broad as possible. So where'd you grow up? What was your childhood like? Give us a sense of what it was like growing up, Patrick Montgomery. Yeah, so um. Uh, where I'm sitting right now is about 45 minutes northwest of Kansas City, uh, and I was raised about 30 minutes south of here. So, um, you know, lived in the same house from three years old on, went to school around here. Um, yeah, so Parkville, Missouri is my home, and, you know, we're, we're kind of coming back to our roots, the, the prodigal son, if you will. Yeah. So, I mean, so you had kind of that typical Midwestern upbringing, uh, you know, with the family and all those types of things, but as I understand it, and, you know, just forgive me, we get into heavy stuff early as much as we can, but my, my understanding is that you kind of had a rough spot, um, in your early twenties and it had a lot to do with some of your, your decision-making and some, some things that you did, some kind of knucklehead things. So tell me a little bit about all that, because I think that leads into the the next stage of your life, which we'll get into in a second, but what the heck were you doing in your early twenties? What was wrong with you? It's probably, uh, even before that cow, I'd say probably about 12 <laughs> or 13, right? I, okay. I, was, I was definitely a knucklehead man. So, um, you know, the second that testosterone came on at, at puberty there, I, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of guidance growing up. Um, you know, I was the last kid of four and, uh, there was a pretty substantial age gap between me and my next sibling. And I think my parents were worn out and I was their first boy. Uh, so that's, that's challenging in itself. Right. So, um, I put them through the ringer, a lot of, you know, fighting and sports and, you know, underage drinking and the whole nine yards. And, um, you know, I got good grades. I got along well with my teachers. I never got in trouble in school. Um, it was always outside of school that I got in trouble. Um, I was always polite and courteous to, to people, but I was definitely, uh, a, a bit of a rebel. And so 
the next stage of your life that I know about, because uh, I tried to find, I tried to, you know, hire a private investigator to figure out all the stuff about you and all that, but I couldn't figure out everything about your life and put all the pieces together, but you eventually were drawn to the military. And so we'll, we'll get into, you know, you know, what branches you went into and all that kind of stuff. So was that kind of your way out of some of those bad decisions was going to the military? I guess just generically, what drew you to the military? It was kind of always my plan, Kyle. And, um, you know, from about five years old on, I, you know, watched, uh, Rambo and, uh, you know, the, the Rocky movies and Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger and all these different action movies. And, um, you know, it, it, it kind of spoke to me as a young kid that that was looking for a path. And, uh, so I always had the intentions to go in the military. I just wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Um, in high school, uh, I thought I wanted to be a Navy SEAL. And then I had a brother-in-law who was a, a Army Ranger in 1st Battalion. Um, he was married to my sister, who was about five years older than I was. So when I was starting high school, he was just getting to battalion. Um, and he kind of steered me away from that Navy SEAL path and, and pushed me towards becoming an Army Ranger. Um, and the route I was going was actually uh, to do the officer side. So uh, I got a scholarship um, to Northwest Missouri State University. Um, so, so it was a full ride, you know, four years of college and, uh, you get commissioned as a second Lieutenant when you get done. So t- real quick on, on that, uh, I'm going to go back to the eighties movie thing that you just talked about. And then we'll get back in the, to the army stuff because my buddy, Eddie Penny, who was, uh, he's a retired Navy SEAL. He posted this on his Instagram, like, like this week and it was eighties superheroes and it had like Rocky and, and Rambo and it had, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger and, you know, the, the bad guy from Rocky four. Um, and then it had the, the superheroes from 2019 and it's all the actors from the Avengers. And they're all like kind of smaller guys with these non-defined, you know, non-muscular bodies and, you know, in their nice suits and all that. Whereas, you know, the eighties guys, it was all the barrel chested, like ripped out, you know, uh, big time dudes, I guess. Cause for me, I was born in 86. So I kind of missed all those eighties action hero movies because I, I wasn't quite old enough to, to watch them. And going back now they're, they're kind of corny to be honest, but they would have been awesome if I was watching them at the time. So I guess like, is that kind of funny for you seeing like how, how manliness quote unquote is described today when that's kind of the heroes you grew up with? You know, I think I like, I like both. I like the, the new Marvel movies. Um, it, it's different, right? Like our, yeah. our, our cultures become a lot more sensitive to, to violence and, um, as they should be right. Violence is not something you want people doing, but at the same time, it's just inherent in human nature. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're built the way we are and there, there are certain things that speak to us. And I think we've kind of created this culture as a, as a country in a world where it's like, we, we try to shy away from the way we're built and it's like, man, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to fight biology. Right. So, um, you know, the, the eighties movies definitely speak more to me than, than modern culture. So. Yeah, it certainly would have been easier to sit your kid down in front of, of Rambo, realizing that they they were not going to get a bazooka and like take out you know some you know uh, sniper nest in Vietnam or something like that. Like it, it was probably going to be okay for your kid to watch that. Um, so, did do you, I guess when you look at your military career again, you kind of went that route and you went to the Rangers, and we'll talk about the Rangers here in a second. But do do you regret going that route? Like, do you do you wish does part of you wish that hey, you know, maybe I should have tried to be you know SF or maybe I should have tried to to go the SEAL ride or all that? And I'm not rank ordering them. Yeah. The public loves to rank order them, especially on the civvy side of things. But do you look back and say like, you know, I wonder if I could have done something else or, or kind of gone a different route? Well, and I, so what I was about to say is I ended up dropping out my freshman year of college and I enlisted. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, you know, I, I, the O side is, is, is great for some people, but you know, yeah. I wanted to be the guy kicking indoors. And the second I figured out like, Hey, I'm leading a platoon, which is, is awesome. Right. But you're also doing it as a 22 year old kid that has no idea <laughs> what the hell is going on in the world and especially on the battlefield. Um, and so it just didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And so I was like, you know, I can do this whenever I'm a sharp guy. I can go do college if when I'm in or, um, you know, further down the road, but right now there's a war to fight. Um, so I dropped out and this would have been in 2010 and I enlisted. Um, and so I got to first ranger battalion in 2011. Um, your, your question, I I think what people don't realize about special operations is they all have different mission sets. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you kind of do your research and you figure out, hey, which one speaks the most to me? And, you know, obviously I had the insider knowledge of speaking to Jeremy. And of course, he he was pretty uh, uh, persuasive towards the Ranger route. But, you know, the way he used to put it is like, we're not finesse, right? We're not going on hostage rescue missions. We're not we're not 
we're not SF, we're not going in and we're not helping a native army kind of build and train. He's like, we're hammer. Right. And, mm-hmm. and when there's bad dudes that need to be killed, that's what we're doing. Um, and he was, he was spot on. Um, I mean, I, I forget what the statistic is and, um, for Ranger Battalion during the GWAT, but it, I mean, it, it is crazy. The amount that the three rifle battalions in Ranger Regiment held for, Joint Special Operations Command for as far as missions. It's it's absurd. Yeah, it's certainly substantial. And so I want to get into um, something that doesn't always make sense to a lot of people. So there are people that get into the military because they want the accolades, they want people to respect them, they want free college or, or whatever the situation is, but they don't want to go to war. Like you were, I mean, that's when a lot of the, the, the fighting was getting really, really hot at different points. And I'm not sure, you know, where you were deployed at, but like you knew exactly where you were going the moment you said, nah, you know, I'm, I'm dropping out. I'm just going to go ahead and list. I'm going to go now. Explain that to people because that, uh, based on your wiring and based on your personality and even your upbringing, that doesn't make a lot of sense to people because it's like, man, aren't you afraid? Like you could, you could not come home. You could come home maimed. So take us through that. Yeah. So, you know, I said I was a knucklehead growing up, but I was still incredibly patriotic. Like I love this country and that is somewhere where my parents thrived and and teaching me like, Hey, you know, you're extremely blessed to to live in this country. And so, you know, sixth grade uh, is how old I was when the the two towers came down. Right. So um, I remember seeing that, watching that whole thing go down. and, And I remember coming home and my dad told me, you know, Hey, this is the Pearl Harbor of your generation. Like you're, you're watching your kin die, um, from a foreign attack. I just remember being so incredibly angry, right. That somebody would go and strike a bunch of innocent people that had nothing to do with the crazy things that our government does in the middle East, you know, that led to that attack. Um, and I, I made a promise that day to God that, Hey, if I'm of the fighting age and this war is still going on, um, I'm gonna go do my part. And, you know, I kind of took a, a weird path to get there, you know, 20 years old. That took me a couple of years of chasing girls and, and, and debauchery to figure out, Hey, that life's not for me. So, so there's an interesting thing about nine 11. So we're, we're recording this interview a few weeks before it comes out, but this, we just, I guess you could say celebrated. We didn't celebrate, but we commemorated the 21st anniversary of the nine 11 attacks. And every year, Patrick, I try to make sure that I watch the documentaries, the ones that are on Nat Geo and Discovery and all those different things to just remind me of what that felt like. Because I was in, I was in 10th grade. I was sitting in, you know, pre-AP or AP English class or something like that. And Alex Thompson, I'll never forget it. The kid that sat in front of me in class because he was Thompson and I was Thompson. So we were in alphabetical order in the back of the class. And he came in and he said, hey, they just bombed the Pentagon. And I'm like, no, they didn't. He's like, no, 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 seriously, like America's under attack. And I made him walk up with me to the teacher because at the time they didn't have the the televisions in the classroom. They had to wheel them in, right? And I went up to the teacher and I was like, hey, he just said that America's under attack. Are we under attack? And my teacher got really calm and she said, "Um, there's something happening right now in New York and in Washington, D.C. And just stay calm because this is like, you know, 11 in the morning or something like that. And she's like, we're just going to stay calm. Uh, we're just going to get through the rest of class, blah, blah, blah. But my mom worked at Fort Sill at the time. And so, uh, civil service. And so everybody's freaking out. I remember being picked up from school and the lines to get gas were all the way in, into the street and all that. Like people were literally freaking out because we're like, okay, if they're attacking DC at the time, that was the largest artillery base in the United States. Like, are they going to attack Fort Sill? And I, I remember those emotions and that anxiety. And I remember my mom talking about moving us to Canada just in case there was a draft because she didn't want her boy to get drafted. Like I remember all those arguments, but the, I guess for, for me, Patrick is and this happened with Pearl Harbor because I don't feel Pearl Harbor. Like I feel nine 11, like kids today that are joining the military weren't alive when nine 11 happened. Like we're not commemorating it in the same way. Again, we're so divided as a country, but I lament that because like the, the great thing, if you can say that, that came out of all that was the coalescing of patriotism here in the United States. But man, like it's going to take a lot for, for us to teach our children. I got a two-year-old and a six-month-old to teach them, no, this is what happened. And this is what a lot of brave young men and women decide to do immediately after they decide to go and fight. I mean, talk to me a little bit about that because it seems like every year 9-11 is just that it's just a distant memory. It's just this thing that happened and you know, it's just, who cares? Yeah. So it, 
last year I did a news interview and it was right as Afghanistan was falling there. So they did a 20 year, uh, you know, commemoration. And then also we're talking about the fall of Afghanistan and, uh, they had me on for that interview. And I just don't think people realize, um, for our generation of veterans and people that were even alive. I mean, you, you don't forget what exactly you were doing. I was in home ec class, right? And I remember looking over my home ex teacher's uh, computer because I was asking her a question and, you know, I saw a tear rolling down her face and I was like, oh my gosh, are you okay? And I remember looking at her screen and I saw the two towers and, and that was kind of how I found out about the whole thing. But I just remember um, you know, and everybody that was in Ranger Regiment with me, right? Because you get the guys that joined for college and you get the guys that joined for other reason, uh, but they don't typically go to the special operations unless they just had no idea about that. And they're, they're weird like I am and, and love the torture of, of what that lifestyle entails. Um, but every single one of them was there because of 9-11, right? And uh, there wasn't a single one of us that, you know, when we deployed Iraq or Afghanistan or the, the many other countries that we're deploying to now, it's like, we weren't asking ourselves about the politics or anything else. And, and it was just like, Hey, we're here so that these bad guys are trying to kill us instead of planning another nine 11. Okay. So you brought up a lot of stuff that I want to get into, but I've been skipping my own question here that I really want to ask you just because I was interested in other stuff. So you're making me go down all these rabbit trails. What's your problem? <laughs> um, but th- I'm sure there are a lot of misconceptions about the army and specifically about the army Rangers. So could you, I guess, talk about what some people have as far as misconceptions about that whole community? Well, I think the one of the few movies that's ever came out about us was Black Hawk Down, right? right. And and that was that was pretty early on in, in modern Ranger history, right? Rangers have been around since uh, the the French and Indian Wars. Um, that's actually the the tenets that we still follow are are from that. I have my Ranger handbook right here, and the tenets are awesome if you get a chance to look through them. But mm-hmm. um, you know, going forward to to modern Ranger history, that the, the modern three battalions, the three rifle battalions, were formed in the 1970s, right? So post Vietnam, um, they had all these reconnaissance Rangers that they were going out and doing awesome stuff in Laos and Cambodia, and they they formed and. It's been too long since I read my uh, Ranger history, but they formed one battalion and turned into three. Um, But basically our our job is to be deployable anywhere in the world within uh, 18 hours. So there's always a battalion of Rangers that are on standby. Um, And so, you know, Somalia, things like that, that that was kind of a, um, one of our initial conflicts, Grenada, Panama, those were a couple that led up to Somalia there. Um, But that movie came out and I think that just stuck with people and I'll give it to Navy SEALs, man. Like, they have the best PR in the freaking <laughs> world, right? And for us, it's batted into our heads from day one that you are a quiet professional, right? So um, there, there's not a lot of guys getting out there and, and, and talking about what they did overseas um, or writing books and doing these things. Um, I think it probably needs to change just in this informational world that we're in uh, or else regiment's going to die because nobody knows what they do. Um, you know, I, I was fortunate enough. I had a group of, of Rangers come up for my brother-in-law's triathlon a couple of weeks ago, and we we had them out to our, our retail store and cooked up some beef for them. And I'm talking to these two guys, right? They're E6s, which, you know, I got out when I was 23, right? And these guys are 26. But I just remember a staff sergeant seemed so old to me, and now they're kids, right? And, uh, you know, they, they've been in since 2018, and they've already done six deployments. And mm. they're going to countries that they – this country doesn't even know we're in and they're, they're doing more work than any other special operations group. Um, so I can be more proud of where they're going. Um, I do think, think some things need to change as far as the uh, informational campaign they run. Cause I get the, I get the question you just asked right there a lot. What is a ranger? What do they do? <laughs> well, the funny thing about that is, uh, so I'm, I'm going to go ahead and reveal to you the reason why I wanted to even have you on the show. It's not about the stuff we're going to talk about later, which is going to be as delicious as you might imagine. It is the fact that, I get crap for having so many Navy SEALs on my show. And they're like, why are you only have SEALs on? Like, what are you doing? I was like, guys, if SF dudes and Rangers and Delta, if they would write more books and have more movies, I'd have them on. I don't know these guys exist. And so I know that that's always kind of like a thing within the, you know, uh, spec ops community. There's all these different groups and they kind of have their, their different things. But before that, back in the eighties, it was all about the green berets. Right. And so people like you have green berets. Now they're like, Oh, I would, I would never write a book. It's like, you wouldn't. It's like, you know, we can, we don't have to go back that far to see all the different Hollywood depictions of these green berets and, you know, all, all the different uh, fairy tales and stuff about them. So for you, you didn't spend a whole long career. You didn't do 20 years as a ranger or anything like that, but you did deploy, correct? 
Yeah, I deployed twice, um, and I, I had a, I had a, it, you're spot on. It was a really busy time, right? So we were winding down in Iraq um, in 2010 there. I think that was the last time that um, 1st Battalion deployed to Iraq. Um, and so we were picking back up because that's when Obama was surging all those troops back to Afghanistan, right? So we were trying to win back all that territory that we lost while we were focused on Iraq. Um, and so I deployed in 2011. Um, and it was really, really busy uh, for, for the battalion at wide um, and for the whole regiment and the special operations community. I mean, we were going out every single night and hitting targets and kicking indoors. Um, and, you know, I was brand new 21 uh, on that first deployment. And, you know, I, I had some unfortunate stuff. So uh, about a month into that, uh, Jeremy, my brother-in-law, he got killed um, in Pactica, right? So um, I was down in Kandahar. He was about four hours north of where I was at. Um, and he, you know, he got killed doing what he loved leading a squad of Rangers. So on his eighth deployment. So, so, uh, one thing that I actually saw from, from y'all's website, um, which we'll of course get into here in a bit. Um, you were again, deployed when, you know, Jeremy passed away. So at the age of 26, uh, you know, your brother-in-law passed away. So, uh, killed in action on June the 14th of 2011, but, um, you actually had the honor of bringing him home. Uh, yeah. to, uh, to his wife and son, to your sister, uh, and your nephew. And so I guess take me a little bit through that because even people that are deployed, even people that are deployed with family, even people that are not deployed that have family that are killed while on deployment or something like that. That's not always a situation that works out to where you can actually do something like that, where you were actually, I mean, I, tell me how it worked. Were you given leave in order to go do that? Like how, how did all that work? Yeah. So, and, and it's funny looking back with this with some, uh, a little bit more wisdom, it, you know, we just passed his 11th anniversary. Um, so I had just come back from, from, um, a mission that my platoon was on. Uh, and so, you know, we were always working at night. So I was getting back at probably about three or 4 AM local time. Um, and I was a brand new private and being a, being a private in regiment is, uh, interesting, right? Think about like uh, hazing and, and, uh, <laughs> fraternities times about 12, right? Yeah. Um, there's way less rules. Um, so I just come back and I was doing my, my duties, of, you know, I was prepping all our gear to, in case we went out again that night or we went out the next day, we were, we were ready to go. And uh, I had my squad leader, my first sergeant, my CO all walk in the ready room and asked to speak to me, which is never a good thing as a, as a brand new private. And so I'm kind of like, oh shit, you know? Um, and so I walk out the door and, uh, you know, I, Officers are what they are, and my CEO is kind of beating around the bush. You know, do you have a brother-in-law, Biko? And, and then the second he said that, you know, my heart just dropped. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, he's beating around the bush, which, which was really starting to piss me off. And and luckily, you know, my first sergeant, who's one of the best NCOs I ever had the pleasure of working for, um, you know, it's like, hey man, I, I don't want I don't want to lead you on any. Uh, Jeremy got in a bad firefight, and uh, he's dead. Um, he's on his way back to Bagram right now, and. Uh, I, you know, it's crazy. You like have all these, uh, a pip, you know, aberrations of like, what, what would you do if something like that happens? Your worst mm -hmm. nightmare comes to reality. And you know, I just went completely numb, man. I, I didn't hear a word he said after that. Uh, you know, I, I kind of, the, the first thing that popped into my mind was cause I had just talked to my sister that night before. Um, and she was back home in Kansas city, seeing my family here. Um, and so the first thing that popped into my mind was like, oh man, they're going to, they're going to screw up the notification process because she's not at home. And mm. the, the way that notification process works is archaic. Um, and it's something the military really needs to improve because they screwed up a lot. Um, so, you know, I tell my command, like, Hey, my sister's not at home. She's with my parents in Kansas city. Like, let me help with this so that, you know, we can make sure she gets notified quick. Um, they didn't, you know, and I, I totally respect that. I'm a, I'm a brand new ranger ranger. They don't know me well enough, but, um, yeah, so we, I went in, I watched the, the rest of the mission unfold on ISR. Um, and it was, it was a brutal, brutal firefight. Um, you know, they ended up calling in QRF. So it was one platoon of Rangers. Uh, Jeremy was the number one man leading his squad as the assault element to go kick in some doors. Uh, there's a dude with an RPK on the roof. First burst out of it. I mean, first round of that burst just hit him right above his side sapper and, you know, just went right through his heart. So um, he was down first guy um, and then all hell broke loose. Uh, there was a surrounding uh, building series on the target and the whole thing came alive. Uh, there, there was a lot of bad guys. Um, so they ended up calling in two platoons of Rangers and they ended up calling in a, um, 
another troop from from Delta, and uh, it was crazy. So uh, they got after it that night. So we watched all that unfold, um, and then next morning, about six a.m., I jumped on a Cessna and we flew up to Bagram, um, and I met up with his body there. So they do like a ramp side ceremony, um, you know, which is is a really cool experience looking back on it. Uh, not not something that most people get to see or want to see, but uh, it is really cool just um, seeing the respect that, you know, other countries pay to, to the fallen, um, you know, the, the military at whole, uh, all of our allies, it, that was a really cool experience. So, you know, I loaded up on a plane with them as me and one other guy. Uh, we, we flew to, to Germany and then back home to, uh, to uh, Andrews Air Force Base. So, so, uh, <clears throat> You can tell me to screw off if you don't want to answer this question and it won't offend me one bit. But uh, obviously I'm just you know thinking about my audience and what they would want to know. Most people haven't been in a situation like that. Yeah. Um, you know, just earlier this summer, I went to a uh, police funeral for the second time. Uh, this time it was a family member that was yeah. killed while on duty and getting to see all that behind the scenes and walking in the most quiet you know, procession ever with the guy leading out with uh, the bagpipes and being lined with literally hundreds of officers from all, all over the state, all standing at attention. Like it was something else. And when you hear people describe what's happening on those, uh, you know, ceremonies on the tarmac or something like that, it's similar to that. But can you take, take me through what it was like coming home? And cause of course you weren't coming home to break the news. You were just basically nope. accompanying the body, but you get there and you're dealing with the, the most raw uh, emotions possible with people that I'm assuming you love dearly, you know, obviously your sister and your nephew, um, but also your, your greater family. And here you are, you're still in the military, but you're alive yeah. and you know, there's survivors guilt. There's so much in there. So I was just seeing if you wouldn't mind, you know, taking us through what that whole thing was like. Yeah. There's a, there's a couple uh, big moments from that trip that, I mean, to the day I die will, will stand out to me. Um, you know, the, the first one is, is talking to my parents the first time. Um, I couldn't bring myself to call my sister. I mean, I was, a, I was a wreck and you know, I need to, in, in my mind, I was like, I need to be strong for her because she just lost her husband. He might've been, you know, one of my best friends, but it was her husband. Um, and so I, I couldn't bring myself to call her, but I called my parents when I got to Bagram after we did the ramp side ceremony. And we had, you know, I think it was roughly 12 hours or something like that before we took off for Germany. And, uh, that's when I figured out the notification process got so screwed up. So they wouldn't let me call home because nobody had been notified yet. So that's kind of way it all works. And they wouldn't let me help, even though it's my family and I know where everybody lives and everything else. Um, and, uh, finally talked to my folks and, you know, they'd ended up sending a notification team to my parents' house. Well, I'm deployed too. Right. <laughs> um, and so, you know, my sister had just left, she had, she'd already gotten on the airport. And so, you know, I, a chaplain and a, a dude in uniform show up at my parents' house. And, you know, the, this is their first deployment with me. And so naturally they think I'm gone. Right. Um, so it's like, you know, I remember like talking to them and they just broke down. And of course it's like, you know, That's come, so almost, almost like coming back from the grave, right? Like they're just so thankful, um, which pissed me off. Cause in my mind, I'm like, you know, I would have taken that bullet and a heartbeat over Jeremy, but, um, that stands out. And then they ended up notifying her in the Savannah airport, uh, right as she got off the plane, uh, which I think was pretty screwed up too. Um, <clears throat> but I remember, uh, one of Jeremy's best friends from a, from a sister platoon, they'd, they'd been raised up in, in regiment together. And, you know, the second I got off that Cessna, you know, he, he gave me a hug and, you know, he's a really tough SOB and, you know, he's doing bigger and better things now. Uh, in the military, but, you know, he handed me Jeremy's wedding ring and, you know, it's in a Ziploc bag and, um, you know, it's still got blood on it. Right. And I, you know, I'm 21 and, um, yeah, it just, it wrecked me, man. I think it, it didn't really hit me until he handed me that. And it was like, shit, um, this is real. Um, that one stands out. I think one of the cool, I have a couple of really awesome experiences too, right? I'm talking about the mm -hmm. negative right now, but um, I was flying home with the E7, uh, also a really good friend of Jeremy's. Uh, he said he's having his first baby, which kind of looking back at it now with that dichotomy of like death and life, right? Like, you know, he's, I'm going home to bury a best friend. He's going home to have his first kid. I, I almost think that's kind of cool um, the way that all played out. Um, but I remember we get on the, the plane and it's just me, him, 
the casket and then uh, a reporter sitting on the opposite side of the plane. And I watched this reporter pull out his cell phone and, and take a picture of the casket. And, oh, man, I was, I was pissed, right? And so, you know, I, I lean over to him and I tell him, and he's he's about 5'7", this guy is. He's, he's a little dude, but um, he's got one of those faces just, just to let you know, like, hey, man, um, you know, you don't mess with me. And so I, I told him, and he stands up and he walks over to this reporter and he just leans over and whispers something in this dude's ear. And the guy just, all the blood drains from his face, right? And you see him kind of fumble with his phone, pick it out, and and start deleting this pictures that he, that he took. But, um, you know, I, the amount of people that came out of the woodwork when we buried Jeremy with, I mean, just like you were talking about with your, with your um, police officer, family member, um, you know, we, we think we don't have our stuff together as a country, but when something like that happens, we're still uh, very capable of coming together and realizing like, Hey, these guys shouldn't be held responsible for the stupid decisions of our politicians, whether you're Republican or Democrat. Well, let's talk a little bit about stupid decisions of our politicians, because with that, and, and by the way, thank you so much for sharing uh, yeah. all that, because that's that's family and that's stuff like that. And, and again, I'm, I'm getting to see that in a different way with, with the death of a police officer and kind of what the community is doing to come around the family. But there's always the realization that at some point, the, the, the meal trains have ended, uh, the prayer vigils are gone, they, they've cleaned up all the flowers and all those things. And it's just the family there. And so that's what I tell people all the time is when someone's lost tragically, like when they lose their spouse or a kid or something like that, it's like the ministry to that family probably starts like six months after, maybe a year after, like whenever it's not in the news anymore and whether people aren't, you know, trying to see what they could do at their gym or at their restaurant or at their business to support. It comes way, way after that. And, and I know you would co-sign that, but you obviously uh, mentioned it earlier in this podcast, uh, the pullout from Afghanistan was a little over a year ago. And that caused so many issues within the country of Afghanistan, obviously, uh, with uh, the entire country under the rule of a terrorist organization, the Taliban now, um, the, the famine that's occurring in that country, the women that are under horrific control in that country going back to Sharia law. There's all of the unbelievable uh, other vacuums of power that were created that other countries and other negative forces are going to be entering into because we decided to abdicate. We decided to only do part of the process and not the full process. And you could be as anti-war as possible, but when you're at war, at some point, you've, you've got to finish it. And also, you have to understand that we have troops all over the world that aren't at war. They're, they're just on call, if you will. And we were basically in a similar situation at, in Afghanistan a year and a half since the last KIA in that country. And yet the Biden administration thought in their infinite wisdom uh, that it would be a great thing to pull out from there. And that caused all the issues I just talked about in the country, but it also caused this consternation for veterans and for gold star families and for people that lost people in Afghanistan and lost people in the global war on terror and, and all those different things. And so for you, I don't think you said that you deployed to Afghanistan, that you were in Iraq, but it did, did you have those similar feelings that a lot of those veterans had? Because again, as a civilian, I'm furious because of the the people that are being violated in the country of Afghanistan, because of how bad we looked, how weak we looked, and what that caused with, you know, probably the Russians saying, ah, well, I guess uh, this administration is not going to do anything. I guess we'll go ahead and invade Ukraine. Maybe next it's going to be China invading Taiwan and all that. And it all became because we're seen as weak. We're seen as paper tigers as Americans on the world stage. So I know I just threw a lot out there at you, but talk to me a little bit about everything, you know, tied to the pullout from Afghanistan. Yeah, so um, both of my deployments were to Afghanistan. Oh, um, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, you're, no, you're good. I, I was just in a different region from Jeremy when he got killed there, um, and so it, it was it was incredibly tough. And a lot of things you just touched on right there, um, you know, speak to my heart. And you know, this last year, I've watched a lot of veterans that you know buried friends and lost limbs and carry uh, trauma from, from what they did over there um, spiral because of just what we, I mean, it's the same thing we did in Vietnam, right? And the same thing that happened at that uh, generation of veterans, except, you know, their country hated them at that point. So they had it even worse than we do now. Um, but it, it, I think what drives me nuts in war is uh, it, it should be 
the military that makes these decisions, not politicians or the state department or any, anybody else, right? Like anybody as a, as a E five in the military, I could have looked at this from 30,000 feet and been like, this is going to be a total disaster, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're pulling out of Bagram, <laughs> a place that we controlled and had the high ground and had barriers and, and defenses set up where we could control the situation. We pulled out and we decided to go to a downtown airport that's surrounded by a populace that hates us. And then on right. top of that, we, we send in a group of Marines. Uh, that's not their bread and butter, right? Like, um, you know, I think it was Marcus Luttrell said on Fox News, uh, uh, right, as this was all playing out, like somebody needs to go to the Pentagon and open that drawer uh, that says break in case of emergency uh, for securing an airfield. And you're going to find the 75th Range Regiment. It's what we trained on every single mm-hmm. training cycle was how to how to secure an airfield. Um, and so it, you just watch the stupidity. And I think, I think the toughest part about all of that, Kyle, is, is nobody in the military that was higher up in that command stood up and said, I'm not doing this. This is a stupid choice. It's going to get people killed. And, uh, it, it was, it was incredibly frustrating to watch as, you know, watch it unfold from Fox news or CNN. And honestly, the, the image is detrimental to the military, uh, cause we still have, so many conflicts going on in the world. We're just not talking about any of them because they don't look good for the current administration. Um, and so I think that's pretty, pretty frustrating for me is just um, the lack of caring for, for the guys that gave life and limb uh, to do what we did over there. And um, you know, it was going to take generations to fix Afghanistan. Um, we all knew that. I don't know if our politicians knew that, but they kept being like, we're going to win this in four years. It was never going to happen. Um, but what I never understood is why, why can't you just leave a base like Bagram there? Just our security and our air force at a base in that region would have brought security to the entire country. Right. Um, just like Cuba, right? Like I'm, mm. when you have that military presence right there in your backyard, um, the Taliban's going to be a little more, uh, reluctant to go do stupid stuff. So. Well, and then the first attempt at this over the horizon capability that they convinced us was going to be all they needed to do, they obliterated an entire family's worth of people and killed like seven kids, right? Yeah. Because they they hit the wrong Toyota. And so it's like, and again, mistakes happen. And as we, we've seen a lot of, you know, big time military personalities say, it's like it, you, if you don't have the stomach for collateral damage, you don't have the stomach for war. And so obviously that's something that happens, but the, hearing people describe it as, Hey, you know what? We had to rip the Band-Aid off at some point. Yeah, that really sucks that we lost 13 service members. And yeah, it really sucks that the Afghan people were falling from the airplanes and all that. But, you know, we just had to rip off the Band-Aid at some point. Again, it goes into this whole narrative, Patrick, about the United States is not the world's police. Okay. And now I think most Americans understand that instinctively because it made sense to us to go to Afghanistan to fight against the people that did 9-11 to us or that had anything to do with 9-11. And then you start getting into the conspiracy theories and all that. And I'm not getting into any of that, but then it didn't make sense to Americans why we would send people over to a proxy war in the Ukraine, for instance, right? Like, Hey, let's go over there and fight directly against the nuclear power that is Russia via Ukraine and do all these things. So instead we're sending seemingly $40 billion every 17 seconds over there, but we can't secure our Southern border. We can't buy security guards to, to stand, you know, guarded our, our elementary schools or whatever, even though we have them at all of our banks. But, you know, talk a little bit about this America, you know, team America, like we shouldn't be that, that force around the world because in my personal opinion, and I have this, you know, sneaking suspicion you'll agree with me is when America is strong, the world is, has more virtue in it. The world is safer when we are stronger. Go. Yeah. So I, where I disagree with you is, um, you know, the world's police. I do agree. Like, Hey, we need to be agile, right? So committing conventional forces to some of these countries. And it was our biggest issue in Afghanistan and Iraq. We, our conventional forces, they didn't have the training and it was no place for a conventional army, right? You needed to be agile and, uh, you didn't need these, these thousands of bases and, and millions of troops to be in these countries. You needed an agile force, in a centralized location that could go play whack-a-mole. I think it was Obama that said that in, what was it, 2012 or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, and, and he was right there. Um, you know, we, we do need to be able to jump from this country to this this country and go snot, you know, cut the head off the snake here. Um, and we've gotten way better at it, uh, especially as a special operations um, force in general. Um, but, you know, I think what, what drove me, what continues to drive me nuts about this country is we give our word 
to people, which may not matter to mm. politicians on the left or the right, but it, it matters to me as an American that we go and do this and we, we tell these people, we've got your back. And then, I mean, we left them to the wolves. And if you, it drove me nuts watching the, these news anchors um, talking about how the Taliban have changed and they're, you know, they're, oh, yeah. all this they're reformed somehow. And it, it, it's just not true. Right. Um, you know, the amount of evil committed by, by the people in command in that country, the Taliban forces, the Al Qaeda, um, the many other groups that operate in Afghanistan, Iraq and Syria. Um, it, you've never seen evil like it. And once you do see that, you realize there, there's no negotiating with these people, right? Uh, it, you come from a place of power. You don't come from a place of weakness. Yeah. And I know there are people that are like, they don't hate us because they hate us. They hate us because we're there and all these different things. And everyone's got their own argument. But what I do know for a fact, because I know people that were on the ground there at HKIA whenever all this was going down, you know, when the Marines are basically trying to create a perimeter, but they were a perimeter inside a perimeter that was controlled by the enemy. Okay. But they, they would literally, so this is a Taliban, the reformed Taliban that wears suits and apparently speaks good English. They were literally bringing civilian women and children and executing them right in front of Marines, Yep. basically daring the Marines to engage. Right. And so, cause then if that happened, now we have an international incident, right? Now we've got a firefight right outside of H. Kaya while all the cameras in the world are pointed on this one part of the globe and all that. And it would have been terrible. That's exactly what they wanted. And these weren't fringe Taliban people. These weren't guys that were operating outside of the dictates of the Taliban. These were people that are doing, were doing exactly what they came to do. And all they wanted was to shed as much Western blood as possible. And if they needed to shed some blood of their own people that believe in the same faith that they do, they were okay with doing that. Um, so kind of a hard transition, but staying in the, in the world of military, uh, as a civilian, I'm definitely concerned about this move of wokeness in the military to where, you know, what it first was is like, okay, we're going to try to get more women into combat roles. Like that's a good idea. We need more women to be in the spec ops community. Uh, for representation purposes, not for lethality purposes, mind you, but for representation. And then now we have these ads that are advertising, you know, hey, you should join the military. You know why? Because you have two mommies and we want to have as many, you know, LGBTQ people in the military as if that makes any sense. During the month of June, we've got the Marines tweeting out an image of a Marine helmet with rainbow bullets on the side. Like that's going to get a corn fed kid from Missouri to come out and, you know, join the military whenever they're a teenager or something. So it concerns me that the United States military seems to be focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion, to be focused on, you know, uh, spreading the love around and whatever things that they're doing and not focused on what they should be focused on, which is being able to kill people and break stuff in the most efficient way possible. So for you as a veteran, you know, and as a person with a functioning brain, what do you think about all this? Well, you know, I'm fortunate to, to be in a place now in my life where I do get a lot, a lot of younger kids that, um, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about taking this path. Um, towards the special operations and, and like, can you speak to your experience? Um, and it, it's a great honor that, that I get to speak to that. Um, but they, they do bring up this concern, right? Cause, uh, there's a very specific person that, that's called to do that job. Um, and, and, uh, a lot of times it's a darker person that, that God just created, uh, for one thing and that's it. Um, it's war. Um, and, it, it's tough for these kids to, to see what's going on in the military, to hear about all this craziness. And they're like, why? And I, I, I don't have a good answer for them. Right. And I think, I think you're seeing this in the military right now. They're, they're asking themselves, why is our recruitment down? Right. Like, why are we only meeting 55% of our quota for the year? Well, it's like, I mean, the, the people that are drawn to the military are the kind of people that want to protect this country um, mm -hmm. and to, to hurt bad people. Um, and, I just, they're marketing 101, right? Your, your brand message is off point for, for mm -hmm. that demographic. So, yeah, it's a rough thing to watch. And, and it's, it's heartbreaking to me knowing so many members of the spec ops community and to hear them say, oh yeah, if I were 18 years old in 2022, I would never join the military. Like there's no way, like I'm going to go do something else. And how many good, strong, patriotic young men are going to go the way of business or the way of college or the or way of just some other thing, like, uh, you know, working in some cubicle somewhere. Like that's, that's what they're going to dedicate their lives to whenever they should have gone this route. Uh, one thing that you've, you've mentioned several times, and I think you mentioned earlier in the podcast, how, you know, you, you, 
made a deal with God or he made a guarantee to God that, you know, if you were able to fight, if the fight was still going on, that you were going to get into the fight, you know, after 9-11 and those types of things. That's always strikes people a little bit odd when you hear soldiers, when you hear people that have been in war, that have been around death, that have dealt death uh, to evil men uh, around the globe, that these people would be devout Christians as well. Um, and so I've had several of them on my show and they kind of explain, obviously there's a difference between killing and murder and there's a difference between doing all these things. But the general sense I get from a lot of these people is they don't see this dissonance, right? The schism between their faith in God, their, their, their belief in Christ and going out there and pushing back evil up to, and including killing some bad people that are doing everything they can to destroy the image of God and other people. So what about for you though? So how, how did your faith become affected by what you saw and by what you did serving in the military? Um, that's a, that's a convoluted question for me and, and, uh, probably longer than we have to talk about on this, this podcast, but to, to kind of break it up, um, in more simple terms, uh, you know, I, I spent a lot of time as a kid reading the Bible. Um, I was raised Catholic and I didn't agree with that religion specifically. And, uh, you know, I still have a lot of issues with religion in general and just the way it tries to push men. And I, I think you would probably agree with me there on, on some aspect. Um, but, you know, the Old Testament's packed full of stories of warriors, right? Um, King, Di King David being my fa favorite story, right, of the Bible. Um, and, you know, we kind of we just kind of throw that Old Testament out and some of the stuff that happens in there um, and a lot of the, the churches you go to um, today. Um, but it is a I mean, it's, it's half of the Bible. Right. Um, yeah. And so that always spoke to me. And, you know, honestly, I, I never lost sleep over the things we did um, in war. I lost sleep over the friends we lost, but I never lost sleep over that um, because if you met these people, um, that we were going after and you saw the things they were doing to other people. Um, there's no like, Hey, we're going to, we're going to fix this individual. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> it's just not happening. Right. Like, um, and so I, I just, uh, I never had any issues with it. There was never like, man, I'm going to hell for the things I did. Um, you know, we're, we're sinners and we've absolutely done some terrible things. I continue to do terrible things. It's just part of the, uh, being a man, right. As you're, you're called to, to, to some sin. Um, but you know, that aspect of religion, I just, I have a hard time. I remember, uh, right, at, right. As I was getting out there, uh, I spent my last few months at Fort Riley, which, um, was, a not the best duty station I ever had. And I had an E5 that, you know, I'd spent his entire career trying to dodge deploying. Right. And I remember mm -hmm. he pulled me aside and he's like, you know, I'm deeply religious and, um, you know, I, I just don't know how you deployed and it, keep in mind, this is still an infantryman, right? So he, he signed the dotted line to become an infantryman. And he's like, I don't understand how you killed people. And it's like, dude, what are you talking about, man? Like you signed on the dotted line to become an infantryman in a time of war for the United mm -hmm. States. It's like, you know, the, and so that whole mindset kind of killed me. Um, and I was a lot angry. I mean, we didn't get into that, but I went down a pretty dark path after Jeremy got killed. We lost, we lost quite a few more guys after that. Um, and it was the biggest reason why I got out was, you know, it was going to kill me if I stayed in. So, yeah, it's a rough thing. And, and, we probably need to further that conversation with each of us having a bourbon and a cigar in our hands. And yeah. uh, we can talk about that further um, because at some point we need to talk about the, the fact that you did transition out of the military and you made the direct path that everybody makes when they leave the military, they get into the cattle game. So I don't know <laughs> if that's like the, the most common thing ever, but to me, that seems fairly unique. So I know that there's a lot of detail in there, but yeah, you got out of the military, but at some point down the line, you decided, yeah, let's go ahead and raise cattle. So tell me how the heck that happened. Yeah. So, um, I had a girlfriend before I joined the military and actually the day she broke up with me, was the day I enlisted and dropped out of college. Right. Uh, I was really kind of only staying in for her and I was like, well, <laughs> it sucks to be broken up. And at the same time, like here's, here's where, I'm being called. And so I went and did that and, you know, we were still friends through that whole thing. And, um, you know, we started dating in my last year in the military. Uh, and she's like, well, are you going to reenlist? And, you know, I was still, I, I was still pretty committed to, Hey, I, I want to do this. It's the, the only thing I've ever wanted to do my whole life. But if I do it, I'm not going back to regiment or SF for one of those. I'm going to go to go do the long walk and go to, to Delta selection. Right. And, uh, mm. 
Um, so I was faced with these two pathways of either getting out or going to do that. Um, and I remember going into my CEO's office and I told him this and he's like, I'll get you the paperwork. Like, that'll be what we do for your reenlistment. Um, and I was like, okay, here's my biggest question. If I fail, do I come back here? <laughs> uh, and he was like, yes. And I was like, all right, I'm gonna go check things on the civilian world. Um, and so we, uh, my wife was like, well, what other passions do you have? And I was like, I don't know. Right. Like this is the only thing I ever wanted to do in my life. And, uh, sorry, got the dog here. Let me kick him out. No, you're good. We love dogs here on, on Daunted Life of Man's podcast. All right. And he's, he's a uh, perpetual mouth breather. So you would have definitely. Up <laughs> well, just put him in your lap. That'll make it awkward for the rest of our time here. Seriously. Um, and so, uh, you know, she started asking me these questions and I was like, I can't handle being behind a desk for the rest of my life. And I, you know, can't handle doing the corporate America thing. So, um, she's like, well, what about a veterinarian? And I was kind of like, I do like the medicine side. You know, I'd had a little bit of exposure to that in, in the special operations and, and I enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, so I started doing some research and I figured out that I could pay for that college, um, without taking out any student loans. And mm-hmm. so that, that was the path that I, I fully committed. Right. So, um, I shadowed my last six months. I was in the military at a clinic in, um, at Fort Riley there, a veterinary clinic, uh, got some exposure there, fell in love with it. Uh, went back to school at university of Missouri doing their uh, animal science pre-vet program. Um, and I only wanted to do the large animal side. Uh, and then I kind of figured out, uh, it's really tough to, to make a living on the large animal side of veterinary medicine, at least justifying the amount of money that you pay for that school. So, um, about three, two years into my program there, I got a job at a small animal clinic and I was like, I just can't do this, man. You're doing neuter spays and cleaning teeth all day. And I was like, it just isn't up my alley. <laughs> um, and so change paths again. Um, I was like, well, I told my wife, I, she, you'd have to be the, the breadwinner for a couple of years while I made it through my undergrad here. And so it's time for me to go get a job. So started, you know, sending my resume out. Um, at this point I'm in my second to last semester of my undergrad. So I start sending my resume out to, um, a bunch of different, you know, corporate America jobs in Kansas city. And, uh, I ended up getting an interview at a really good company, uh, for basically a security position. Um, they're, they're all over the world. So they needed people that went and consulted on, Hey, is this, this a hard target or a soft target? And, um, the last question they asked me in the interview was, uh, you know, do you have any questions for us? And my question was, you know, what do you spend the majority of your day doing? Cause I'm still confused on like what this job actually entails. <laughs> And, uh, you know, the, the guy was kind of taken back by it. And he's like, you know, honestly, we spend most of our days convincing corporate that they're, that we're worth the money they spend on us. And I was like, I just, you know, the air kind of yeah. fell out of my lungs. Yeah. And, uh, and I remember driving back to Columbia and I called my wife and I was like, I am lost. I like, I can't do this. Like, I feel like I'm selling out for a paycheck and like, I'm coming from this job that I loved. And at this point I'm starting to have some serious regrets about getting out. Um, and you know, I, I spent two or three days kind of chewing on it. And I remember coming home from class one day and she came home from work and I was like, I'm gonna start a business. And <laughs> she's like, um, okay. Like your degrees in animal science, you didn't even take an economics class. Like, what do you know about business? I was like, I don't know. I'll figure it out. And right. so I did. Right. So I spent a couple of weeks chewing on it and I came up with this business plan for Casey cattle company, which essentially was bringing Wagyu beef to the Midwest was kind of where we started. Um, and nobody knew what the hell Wagyu beef was in 2016 when I started the company. Um, and so it, it, it's been a wild ride, you know, kind of coming from that to this and looking back on it, I mean, man, I'm, I've been incredibly blessed and it's been a wild ride. Well, people still don't know what Wagyu beef is. So how about you uh, break it down for us? Cause I've been talking about it on my show for a few weeks, but I'm not the expert. So yeah, give us yeah. the rundown. So Wagyu beef just means black cow in Japanese. If uh, people always think of that Kobe beef and Akiyushi, Akiyushi just means red cow in Japanese. And then uh, Kobe is Wagyu beef that's raised in a specific region of Kobe, Japan. Um, 
where they have to meet a certain grading standard. So uh, go ahead and get all that out the door real quick because those are a couple of the questions I get right off the bat. It right. is a breed of cattle. Um, it's not the way you raise them. It, it is it is a breed of cattle. Basically, the breed has two mutations, one of which allows for a tremendous amount of intramuscular fat, which is marbling the good stuff you want to see in a steak. And the second of those mutations is basically the melting temperature of that fat's about 20 degrees less. So you get a much more buttery flavor when you uh, eat the steak. So tell, kind of give us like the bird's eye view difference of like, okay, is the life any different for, for the cattle? Uh, it, like if they're of that particular breed, do you basically treat them the same? Cause everyone starts getting into, you know, grass fed or grass finished or grain or blah, 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 and all these different things. So kind of give us a process of what y'all do in terms of raising these cattle on your land. What will answer quite a few of those question, questions, Kyle, is going through why it's so expensive. Uh, people always ask that, like, why is it so expensive? There's there's three reasons. Uh, the first of which, it's an incredibly small breed of cattle, uh, so you're getting less meat per animal. The second reason is the animals are incredibly expensive. Um, the, the genetics are all holed up. You know, the best genetics are holed up in Japan still. And so we had some genetics come over in the 1980s to America, which is essentially where the whole herd uh, originated. Um, and so you're still paying, you know, anywhere from five to 10 times the amount that you would for a traditional um, heifer or bull or whatever it may be that you're buying. The third reason is um, they feed out way slower, right? So you're, you're harvesting, uh, say, an Angus, a commercial Angus at roughly 18 months. Uh, about the earliest you can go with a, um, F1 or F2, which is, you know, 50% Angus, 50% Wagyu or 75% Wagyu, 25% Angus is 24 months. If you're doing full blood, which we do do some of that as well, full blood and purebred. I mean, you're bringing those things up to 30, 32 months. So that, that's the mm-hmm. biggest reason they're so expensive. Um, as far as lifestyle and husbandry out here, uh, there's, there's definitely some things you got to look out for and do differently. The, one of those being, uh, because it originated from such a small genetic pool, there's a lot of inbreeding in Wagyu. Um, so you got to make sure you're not breeding brothers to sisters and that kind of thing. So, um, the, out here, um, we take really good care of the animals. We have a couple, couple other ranches in the Midwest that we work with and we make sure they all follow those same husbandry skills. Um, you know, no hormones. The only time we give antibiotics is when an animal's sick because I don't believe an animal should die because you don't want us to give it a shot. Um, and um, yeah, so uh, that that's kind of the, the down low on um, Wagyu beef. Okay, so now we need to talk about Wagyu hot dogs, okay? Mm-hmm. Because I was under the impression that no matter what, it's all the stuff at the bottom of the barrel that they just kind of mush together and put into a hot dog. Guys, do not... Go to Google right now. Do not go to YouTube and type in, how do they make hot dogs? I'm telling you, don't do it. And I know most of you are going to go do it right now. Don't do it. It's the worst thing ever. You'll never eat another hot dog. But you guys, I guess you could say blew up and you kind of went viral because a few years ago, foodandwine.com, Food and Wine Magazine, uh, they said that your hot dogs, your Wagyu beef hot dogs tasted like a steak. Like it tastes like a tube steak or whatever. So I can co-sign that because when I made them, I'm like, okay, what I'm seeing with my eyes and what, you know, I'm tasting in my mouth and, and all that, that I'm, this isn't making sense to me. Like, cause that, that this, I know it's kind of hot dog shaped, but it definitely tastes more like a steak. So take me through, like, I didn't even know Wagyu hot dogs was a thing until I was turned on to Casey cattle company. So explain that whole thing to me. Um, yeah. So, you know, started the company 2016, our first half year sales was 2017. We really focused on that restaurant market, um, for that first year and a half. And it was a total flop. We were just too early to the to the market and that restaurant business is really tough. So we were failing, right? And the, the biggest thing the military taught me in business is to be able to adapt, right? So we did. Mm-hmm. And we switched to that direct-to-consumer model. We got some awesome press right off the bat, right? Today's show, um, Forbes, New York Times picked us up um, and wrote about our product, wrote about Wagyu. Um, but there was no sustainable business model there yet. Um mm-hmm. We sent a pack of hot dogs, which we created because all of our money was sitting in ground beef in the freezers. Um, we the steaks were flying off the shelves, but you know, and and the ground beef was selling an equal ratio, but that's not how the animals designed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we came up with these hot dogs as kind of a further process item, um, in the hopes that they would catch on and become popular. Hands down, our worst seller, right? Total flop. <laughs> um, and. So we were, we were going to discontinue them after this batch. So food and wine asked for a package and I was like, sure, why not? I think I had 30 left in stock and I, I sent them a pack 
And uh, we never heard anything back from him. It was like three or four months. And uh, it was like a random, it was August 1st, 2019. And I'm over at a neighbor's house helping him build some fence. And um, my phone just starts blowing up, right? I have Shopify, so I get all the orders on my phone. Um, And I'm like, what is going on, right? Like I'm talking, you know, at this point we're doing maybe 10, 15 shipments a week. And I get 10 orders in like 30 seconds. And I'm like, huh. And yeah. so I'm like, hey, neighbor, I got to go and get somewhere where I have like better cell phone reception. So we, we had a PR firm that we had hired. I called them and they're like, I don't think anything came out. And it's about a 10 minute drive from there to back to my house. And in that time period, we had about 200 orders roll in. Wow. And so by the time I get back to my house, I fire up my laptop and I refresh our website and there's 150,000 people on my website. I mean, we were getting maybe a hundred people a week before that. And, uh, so we watched 12,000 orders roll in, in a 24 hour time period. And it was one and a half of us that worked at the company at that point. Right. It was me and I had one part-time employee. My wife still had a full-time job. And Mm. so I'm telling my wife, I'm like, this isn't to kill us. Like death by growth is a real thing. Like, I think I should turn off the website. And she's like, don't you dare. (laughs) (laughs) And so I didn't. And, uh, you know, what we figured out is we're, you know, I had all these business mentors that are like, oh, just like, you know, don't tell your customers what's going on, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I'm not going to do that. That's not who we are. We're transparent. We, you know, we're honest with what we do. So I sent out an email to everybody that was trying to order and had ordered and was just like, hey, um, you know, we're a small company. There's one and a half of us that work here. If you want these hot dogs, they're going to take eight to 12 weeks to ship out to you. Um, if you don't, just send an email back and I'll cancel your order. And so, you know, majority of people are, you know, we, we hear, we only hear about the bad, right. in the media, today, yeah. but it's like, you know, I'm, I'm talking people from California to New York. They were like, this is awesome for you. We're, we're so glad that your business is a success. Awesome. And they waited the eight to 12 weeks and they came back and became repeat purchasers. So that that's so awesome because like you always hear those stories. Well, actually you don't always hear those stories. Like a lot of times you'll hear the story if there's a, a New York times bestselling book that goes along with it, or maybe they were on shark tank or something like that. So it's kind of good to see something like that happen to you guys, because like they all started with those little blessings where it's like, they, they asked for it. They didn't have to ask for it. And then they do it. And then they write the story on it. And it was a glowing story, not a glowing failure and all those types of things. So before we wrap up to the end here, I got to ask you in your opinion, what is the best cut of beef? Okay. And then what is the most underrated cut of beef? Because I think a lot of people like, oh, you know, or is a tomahawk or bone and ribeye or whatever thing or a filet. So what do you think is the best cut of beef in your opinion? And then also what is the most underrated cut of beef? The thing that people ignore and they should. Okay. Um, my favorite cut of beef is a hanger steak. Uh, and the preface I'm going to give to that is don't order from us. <laughs> uh, there's, okay. not a, there's not a lick of difference between a Wagyu hanger steak and one you get from your butcher. Um, I'm a terrible sales guy, but don't order from us. Um, it, it has on the, our website that it's my favorite cut. And so they're perpetually sold out. Um, but we charge an arm and a leg for them and they're way cheaper to butcher. So go there to, to buy them. Um, the, the most underrated cut is a chuck eye steak, at least a Wagyu chuck eye steak. Um, mm-hmm. It, they are fantastic. Um, they're well marbled. And if you're a medium top, top medium, like probably you should be a medium rare person on that steak. Um, it is going to eat better than a top sirloin every day of the week. So I just made one of those a couple of days ago from you guys yep. and I made it for lunch, which it's awesome that you can just like have steak for lunch. Cause that's usually like a dinner and a nice jacket, uh, kind of a, kind of a thing. But yeah, I did. I do it in my cast iron skillet. And so I, I do it as hot as possible at the beginning. And then I kind of sear every side, turn it down, throw a bunch of butter in there, keep kind of putting it up there, get it to medium. Uh, I actually get it to rare and then pull it off and it kind of finishes to medium rare and all that. And it was absolutely awesome. But I know you listen to the show, so I know that you know that this is coming. So at the end of some of my interviews, I like to do a segment called what would you say to someone that said and so that is for anyone that's listening to this that hasn't heard of that segment this is lightning round so i'm going to throw out statements what would you say to someone that said i'm going to fill in the blank and you have 30 seconds maximum to give me your answer regardless of what i'm talking about so it's meat and potatoes only which is obviously appropriate for this conversation so you up for it let's do it all right let's get into the first one what would you say to someone that said i hate the usa i would say what country's better That'd be a good question to ask for sure. What would you say to someone that said, I don't mind store-bought meat. Meat is meat. Um, 
if it's in your price range, I would tell you to find a local farmer. It doesn't have to be Wagyu beef, but just the husbandry of having it outside of feedlot is going to make a huge difference from a grocery store. All right. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said the United States time as the dominant power in the world will soon be at an end? I think we're seeing that across the world, right? It's not just the United States. It's a, it's a globalization problem. And I, I think we're starting to see that pendulum swing the other way with the, the majority starting to speak out. So. And the dog is back because they knew I was going to ask this next question. What would you say to someone that said, I can't afford Wagyu? I would tell you, if you can't afford it, don't buy it. Hey, fair enough. Well, okay. Now that he's made his second appearance on the podcast, you're going to have to tell us the doggy's name. It's Abe. He's a, he's right. a farm dog and a total knucklehead, man. Look at that. Well, hey, he's fine by me. You keep him there. We got a few more questions, though. What would you say to someone that said, our sons and daughters shouldn't fight in these never-ending wars? Man, that's a tough one. Um, I would tell you that um, the military uh, and fighting in wars gives you perspective that you would never be able to gain outside of that. Uh, certainly true of anyone that I know that served. All right. A few more left. What would you say to someone that said, I'm a vegan? <laughs> I would tell you, where's your iron coming from? And I don't want to hear any of the hippie BS. <laughs> <laughs> it's not coming from those little pills that you're buying from the fancy food store. All right. Next two here. What would you say to someone that said meat is murder? I would tell you that, um, we're omnivores and that, uh, it's just the way the animal kingdom works. All right. Last question of the day. What would you say to someone that said, God bless the USA? I would say spot on, right on. And I'd give them one of these. <laughs> yep. Amen. Amen. And amen. Well, man, we've talked about a lot of stuff here. I appreciate you giving us all the time today, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, Cal. I appreciate you having me on, man. Absolutely. Patrick Montgomery, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thank you. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Patrick Montgomery. But before I let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. And don't forget to support the sponsor of today's show, KC Cattle Company. Go to kccattlecompany.com. That's kccattlecompany.com. Use the promo code Kyle to get 15% off your order. Again, the promo code is just my first name, Kyle, K-Y-L-E, for 15% off your order at kccattlecompany.com. And that is the link I've got for you in the show notes today. Go to kccattlecompany.com. Check them out. Give them your support. Thank you guys so much for listening to the show. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>